I'm happy to be able to speak to you all this morning. Well, folks, here we are. Day 86,000 of stay at home. At least that's what it feels like some mornings. Is it Sunday morning? Is it Thursday afternoon? Who knows anymore? How many months has it been now? About four months. Um, If anything, this stay-at-home business has provided lots of time for reflection, lots of time for learning about serious issues affecting our country and and, uh, affecting the world outside our borders. Uh, I mean, who would have thought, who would have thought that in 2020, Storming Area 51, swarming hordes of murder hornets, and declassified footage of UFOs would scarcely raise an eyebrow. So what have you all been learning over these past four months? If you're on social media like I am, you're probably learning lots of things about your friends and family. Maybe some things that have surprised you. People you thought you knew pretty well. Turns out they're wearing tinfoil hats. 5G and Bill Gates and microchips. Uh, They've bought into all kinds of conspiracy theories. I'm surprised that so many of my friends surprisingly have advanced degrees in immunology. I mean, who knew? And here I thought you were just an accountant, right? you've probably learned a lot about people's political and religious views. And you've probably learned what they think of yours. Uh, Over the past few months, I've learned that I'm both a communist and a fascist at the same time. I've been slammed for being a theologian who actually takes Christianity seriously and for not believing the Bible, right, at the same time. And you thought I was a simple man, right? In addition to learning about other people and about their views, I think many of us have been slowly coming to learn things about ourselves. I've learned what it's like to be able to Uh, approach a bank teller wearing a balaclava and a pair of sunglasses and not get arrested. How cool is that, right? Um, I've learned that regular face masks with those elastic bands make my ears look like this. That's not a good look, right? On me, it's not a good look on you. If you stop me in the parking lot of Shop and Save and talk to me, I'm not going to hear a word you're saying because I'm just going to be looking at your ears, okay? And when it comes to my eating habits, here's the most important lesson I've learned during stay at home. Hobbits are lightweights. Six meals a day during stay at home? Are you kidding me? In my house, it's more like yeah, I've done a good 20 minutes worth of work. Time for another slice of cold pizza, you know. And boy, do those slices all seem to add up. Um, I've gotten to the point 
where I don't even look at my naked body in the bathroom mirror because I don't need that kind of negativity in my life, okay? I just keep the bathroom light turned off. But seriously, folks, the fundamental question that I'd like us to grapple with this morning is what are we learning about ourselves as the church, as the people of God, uh, during this dark and quite challenging time? I mean, if we were to take a good hard look at ourselves in the mirror after four months of stay at home, you know, with everything that's gone on in this country, what do we look like? Or would it be better to keep the bathroom light off? The problem is finding an accurate reflection of what we look like, because if I could play with this metaphor a little bit, we kind of like to Photoshop those mirror selfies, make ourselves look better than what we really are. You know, we're the sole bastion of righteousness in a wasteland of immorality. We're the only ones waving the, the standard of truth uh, in this battle of cultural relativism. It's kind of like photoshopping a six-pack ab of spiritual, uh, of spiritual abs on ourself, right? Well, the Word of God is pretty relentless when it comes to exposing our photoshopped attempts to make ourselves look better than what we really are. In our passage this morning, James critiques our actual practice, that is what we do or what we fail to do. Because let's face it, appearance is easy. Photo ops are easy. Snappy sound bites are easy. Tweets are easy. Look, attending, attending services in your living room is easy. I suspect some people have learned how to shop on Amazon while they're attending church. You know, and Jeff Bezos will earn another, will earn another gazillion dollars in the next quarter. But James says we're supposed to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves, not merely those people who claim to have all the answers but then don't actually do anything. And yes, if it helps some of you, you can think of the pirates who don't do anything at this point. Listen to this verse. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they're like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves, they see what they look like, and then on going away, immediately forget what they look like. How in the world can you forget what you look like after you look in a mirror? Especially when you look like this, right? Is the mirror somehow not giving us an accurate reflection of what we look like? Imagine if the mirror of Galadriel had performance issues. You know, she'd be like, whatever, your guess is as good as mine. Of course, it's not that the mirror is not doing its job. James is saying that while the word does give us an accurate reflection of those who have been 
uh, redeemed in Christ, those in whom the image of God is being renewed, those who are freed, those who are free to to serve their neighbor and who are freed from sin, while all of this is true, when we neglect to practice that word, we forget who we are. You know those uh, before and after photos that people sometimes put up when they enter a fitness program? This is kind of like getting the after photo first. This is where we're supposed to be heading. The word shows us the image of God being renewed in us. Uh, When John Wesley, for example, would talk about Christian perfection or entire sanctification, he often talked about it in terms of the image of God being renewed in us through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And throughout this whole letter, James talks about the importance of working out what he calls this perfect law of liberty. And if we don't work it out, that is, if we're not actually doers of the word, then he says, our faith is dead. Listen to his injunction in the passage that was read for us this morning to those who are doers of the word, and this injunction seems to me particularly relevant to us in this cultural moment. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Man, that's hard to hear in today's climate, isn't it? I think we've pretty much flipped it the other way around. We're quick to speak Boy, we're quick to anger, and we're really slow to listen. We listen at all. Not only does this anger not produce God's righteousness, it often ends up doing just the opposite. We end up looking not like the people we're called to be, but mirroring the people we say we're opposing. And you all know there's a very short step to actual violence when two people begin mirroring each other's anger. With good reason, John Wesley advised the early Methodist community, beware of touchiness, beware of testiness, of not bearing to be spoken to. And you all know that sometimes religious types can be the very worst when it comes to this kind of thing. Your anger does not produce divine righteousness, James says. And it's interesting that he, that he says uh, human anger does not produce this. Lots of authors in the ancient world condemned outbursts of anger. Uh, as an antisocial vice. It destroys the bonds of sociality. Uh, You know this, I'm sure. When someone just blows up in your face, that kind of raw emotional outburst, and you think, whoa, I don't want to have anything to do with that person, you probably go out of your way to avoid people like that. Um, 
I often tell my students, there's a good reason why you don't see a Captain Anger in all the superhero movies that come out, right? Can you imagine this Captain Anger, you know, with the power to change people's opinions through the sheer power of his rage? He would be the most ineffective superhero ever. People would be like, do your research, Captain, right? That kind of anger doesn't work. That kind of anger doesn't produce divine righteousness. And here's a little tip for you. Whenever you see or hear that word righteousness, you should be thinking to yourself, relationships that have been put right. That's what it means. So one person doesn't lord it over another. And raw human anger doesn't promote that kind of righteousness. But wow, what a world we're living in. Raging seems to be the order of the day. Let me come back to social media again. Um, so we think it's a megaphone, right? How you can get your opinion out there to thousands or millions of people. But in terms of actually changing people's minds, I think it's pretty ineffective. So think about this. When's the last time you saw someone totally redline on social media, caps lock, exclamation points, and the person on the receiving end said, thank you for presenting such a compelling argument. Why, you've completely dismantled everything that I believe. Thank you so much for chastising me publicly and correcting me. When have you seen this happen? I want to say to you all that social media is as much a mirror as it is a megaphone. All the petty tweets, all the vicious posts that we're bombarded by every day, do as much to show the character of the one putting up this stuff as the actual message they're trying to get across. What do we look like when we engage in this kind of thing? And folks, let me throw this out here. If, if we in the body of Christ don't find a way to talk to each other despite our differences. I think it's the end of the church in this country as a credible source of spiritual and moral renewal. And if you don't believe me, talk to Generation Z. They represent the tidal wave of what's called the religiously unaffiliated. Increasing numbers of them want nothing to do with us because what we look like, not at all attractive to them. Uh, if there's one thing I can tell you about Generation Z, it's this. They can spot a Photoshop selfie a mile away. They can spot a phony. You know, I think talk about living in the Houghton bubble 
kind of overplayed sometimes, but in this case, those of us who live in the Houghton bubble, we really do need to, we need to get our heads out of the bubble and understand the vast changes that are happening in terms of uh, the religious landscape in this country. That's all for another sermon. Back to anger. I suspect some of you are thinking, well, isn't God angry at sin? I mean, what kind of anger is justified? We get an answer to this question in kind of a backhanded way when James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. God is angry, number one, when we allow ourselves to be stained or polluted by the world, I think you'd say, you know, by the spirit of the age. And number two, when we leave off our obligation to the most vulnerable. That is, when we neglect righteousness here, horizontally. Wesley talks about the former in terms of what he calls the negative aspect of Christian holiness, things that you don't do. And the latter, the positive or the active dimension of Christian holiness. And you know, in the little holiness church uh, that I grew up in, and maybe some of you can relate to this, we were experts on the negative aspect. We had that down, you know. I mean, we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't go to the movies, we didn't dance. If someone asked me, what does your church do? I'd say, not much. Oh, the joy of not doing things for Jesus, you know. (laughs) We were suspicious, however, of the positive or active dimension of being a holiness church. That sounded too much like social gospel. And Lord knows, we didn't want to wind up like the mainline Protestants. Caring for the widows and the orphans in their distress might be okay as far as something like palliative measures were concerned, but you didn't want to go too far. You might look like a social radical. Uh, In our culture, of course, uh, widows and orphans don't have the same kind of underrepresented and marginalized status uh, they did in the ancient world. Uh, or as they do in some parts of the world today. Uh, So when we read this passage about widows and orphans, we have to ask ourselves, we we have to make an interpretive decision, what are we going to do with this? We either say, well, it's not applicable to us, uh, or we ask, is there an analogy here? Who are the marginalized here today in our culture where, where we live? If you read your Bible carefully, you'll find that the widow and the orphan are always lumped together with the disenfranchised and with those who have no voice. Isaiah tells us to seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. The psalmist tells us to defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless, maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. This is a lot more than mere palliative measures. Think for a moment about the parable 
of the unjust king and the persistent widow. She's not asking the king for charity. She doesn't want a few crumbs thrown her way. She's asking for justice. And I have to remind you all today that in the New Testament, the word for justice and the word for righteousness, it's the same word. When the widow's asking for justice, she's just asking the king to act righteously. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen one, Jesus asked, to those who are crying out day and night to him. The Bible is clear on this point. God is angry when justice is thwarted. And divine righteousness is always aimed at righting those unjust relationships. The mistake many Christians make is thinking they can be justified or declared righteous, you know, vertically before God while ignoring righteousness or justice on the horizontal level. Again, James says, faith, right, without works is dead. It simply becomes a kind of spiritual or mental game that we play. And what do people look like when they claim to have faith but no works? I think most of us would say they look like hypocrites. Who occupies in our world an analogous place to the widow and the orphan? A good way to tell who they might be, whoever they are, is simply to ask ourselves if we'd, willing, if we'd be willing to trade places with them, to have to live like they do, without having the resources and the advocacy that we have. If we wouldn't, if we wouldn't do that, maybe we should ask why not. And by the way, Jesus calls those people his brothers and sisters. So much so, so, much so that, that whatever we do to them, we actually do to him. On day 86,000 of staying at home, what are we learning about ourselves? As we look into the mirror of the word of God and as we look into the world around us, what do we look like? Looking like this should be the, should be the least of our worries. Spiritual photoshopping isn't going to help. Rather than leaving the bathroom light off, I say to you all this morning, church, let us be doers of the word and not forget who we are in Jesus. Thank you very much for your kind attention this morning. God bless you.